much better than my cell phone. Yeah. So okay. originally, or usually how I start out is I ask about how you got started in the industry. Mm -hmm. Now in your case, I actually watched your video that is on the website, mm -hmm. and I'm a huge John Iverson fan. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I loved how you talked about his practice uh -huh. press conference and you spoke to that being a seminal moment in uh -huh. his career right right so maybe to dive a little deeper right in the beginning what were some of those seminal moments for you in your career if you could speak to that sure um well probably one of the earliest ones i had was when i was in college and um, i had i went to indiana university I went specifically for journalism. I knew when I was in high school that I wanted to be a sports writer and involved in sports. My father had been a um, college basketball coach and later an entrepreneur in North Carolina that dealt with sports. So I grew up around a lot of fantastic athletes. And when I was in college, I worked for, we had at Indiana Daily Student Newspaper. Uh, I was sports editor my junior year. I covered the Indiana men's basketball team my senior year, which was kind of the track you, sh you should go on before right. um, going like a year abroad or any of that stuff. Like we were hardcore into journalism and um, I'd had internships in the summer, um, including one after my freshman year for a PR firm in High Point, believe oh, wow. it or not. Okay. And um, I'd worked for a TV station in DC and uh, the Baltimore Sun. And I felt like I had done, I was doing everything that I needed to do to position myself for employment out of college, but I was bumping up against a lot of um, kind of resistance uh, from my parents. My father had, he didn't really care for sports writers given yeah. like his experiences and background and um, he's like, you're, you know, you're going to be a female in this male dominated business. You're, you're going to really struggle. Uh, you're not going to make any money. Um, you really, you, you should think about doing something else. And so, um, so I was frustrated and I was, it was about middle part of my senior year and I, I looked for, um, you know, the highest profile female in the business that I could find. And this is, you know, this is in the stone ages before there's right. internet and cell phones and email and, um, Instagram, Instagram. Yeah. yeah. Right. Snapchat, the whole nine yards. Um, so the, I, I targeted a lady named Leslie Visser, who at the time was, uh, CBS's lead NFL reporter and she had been a newspaper reporter herself at the Boston Globe and I wrote her a note like a handwritten letter and I just kind of explained my circumstances and what was going on and said you know can you offer me some advice and sure enough like 10 days later this is you know this isn't the 24-hour news cycle this right. is like 10-day cycle uh, she wrote me a letter back and she was like you know I get hundreds of these letters and yours was like one of the most impressive I've seen and you know, as a female, you have to be, you know, she said, knowledge is power. Um, if you know what you're talking about, there'll be a place for you. And uh, she was very specific in saying, um, don't be shy about asking for what you want. If you want to be a beat writer, uh, go after being a beat writer. If you want to be on television, don't get stuck being a production assistant. Like, go for what it is that you want. And... Um, uh, a couple months later, I got a job, or actually a, an internship that turned into a job at Sports Illustrated, and that was kind of how I got into my professional life as a journalist. All right. So you just mentioned 
um, a handwritten note, right? Right. (laughs) Our students deal with the same thing, and so do students all over the country, right? So this idea of, oh my God, no, I have to cold email somebody or LinkedIn message somebody, right? Mm -hmm. Now, do you recall what made your particular letter stand out, that she got that sort of compliment? I don't, and I wish I still have it, had it, but yeah. I don't. I mean, I have the note that she wrote me in response. Um, I think probably um, it was authentic and genuine, yeah. and I think, um, you know, I was really frustrated at the time, and I'm pretty sure that that came through. And, you know, like I said, I had done all of the things at, at that time that you were supposed to do to position yourself, and yet I still was frustrated and um you know I don't know if for her that it was you know she was a Bob Knight fan and I went to Indiana (laughs) and because she had mentioned that too in the letter like I don't I don't know what exactly stuck out to her but I mean I know when I hear from students or people looking for advice like I want to see some level of you know authenticity and hard work and that they're not just looking for advice without having done the legwork that they needed to do themselves. Okay. Um, Playing off of that, could you speak maybe a little bit more to authenticity? Because I think sometimes, maybe even in the sport industry and in the social media age, um, what role does that, does it play for an aspiring professional being authentic and being sort of true to themselves? Mm -hmm. Um, It's a good question because I think... um, depending on what avenue you take, and it's particularly in sports media, I mean, a lot of times the loudest voice gets heard right. the most, and that's not necessarily, you know, it could be more of a performance base than, like, here's an authentic person being themselves. I mean, I'm a great believer that if, um, you know, you act professionally and uh, stay true to yourself, and what your ideals are and what you believe in that you will be rewarded for that. I mean, I felt very passionately when I was working as a as a journalist that um, you know, journalists can get a bad rap a lot of times and for for good reason. Right. Um, I was in a position where I was a sports columnist, so I had to give my opinion on what I felt about what was going on and a lot of and this was in Philadelphia and a lot of times it was about an issue with either the Philadelphia Eagles or the 76ers and the Eagles at the time were coached by Andy Reid and I'd have to write you know if he messed up a game because he mismanaged the clock late or you know didn't call the right play at the goal line you know I would write my opinion about that and I always made sure to show up the next day where I could be sitting face to face with him and he could you know, tell me how he felt about that because yeah. I thought that was important to, you know, if, if you're going to have a, be in a position where you can influence people's opinions, then you ought to be able to stand up and take it when someone is angry with you about what you've written about them. And own that. And, and own it, yeah. certainly. And, um, and I did that enough, you know, to the point where, you know, he and I developed a really strong relationship that continues today because I was accountable and professional and I like to think authentic and you know true to what I believed in all right wonderful now so you started at Sports Illustrated mm-hmm. and then how did things sort of progress from there how did that go and then where did you go from there if you 
could speak to that. Sure. Well, so I was a reporter at Sports Illustrated, which um, at the time meant I was basically a glorified fact checker. It was yeah. an entry-level job, and I uh, worked my way to where I would go on assignment with senior writers, um, where I would go in advance and do reporting and then hand over my reporting to them. And um, I got to the point where I would write a little bit here and there, but I really, I was a writer at heart, and I learned so much when I was at SI about how to report, how to tell stories, how to dig deeper into um, people's lives and, and their psyches by asking, you know, pointed questions and what kind of questions, and I got the, the pleasure of working with one of the greatest sports writers, I think, of all time, uh, which was Bill Mack. He wrote the book on Secretariat, and was a big boxing writer and he's just he taught me so much about how to you know write even you know the rhythm of writing you know the lyrics of writing and um, you know to value each word along the way so I got to the point at SI where I wasn't writing and I wanted to write so I um, I left to cover um, to be a uh, beat writer at the Louisville Courier Journal Um, I covered the University of Louisville football men's basketball teams I spent a little over three years there, and then um, I went to the Philadelphia Inquirer to be a um, general sports writer, uh, which became, uh, I covered uh, the 76ers for four years, and then I covered the Eagles for a handful of years, covered the NFL, was a general sports columnist in Philly. I spent 12 years in Philly, um, which as Andy Reid told me when he left after 14, it was like dog years because <laughs> Philly's a tough market, tough yeah. media market. Um, but it was great. And then I went to ESPN in 2011 as an NFL columnist. So I focused only on the NFL. And um, later that kind of transitioned into being a, a re- NFL reporter and analyst for the network. So I had done a bunch of TV kind of along the, the way, both when I was in working for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and then when I was in my infancy, actually at ESPN. But, uh, so I was doing full-time TV at the end, working for SportsCenter. Um, I would do Outside the Lines, NFL Live, NFL Insiders, his and hers, just whatever show that they wanted. Okay. How was the transition from sort of the written word to the on-camera type of appearance-based? Yeah, well, it was gradual. And like I said, I had done... Um, I had done enough of it when I was writing, you know, just exclusively as a writer, whether it was locally in Philly or for ESPN. And um, I think, you know, the industry has evolved so much that if you can't do a number of different things, like you're not going to be able to be successful. So that's, you know, writing, uh, being on television, doing radio, doing podcasts, um, obviously being on social media, having a presence on social media. Um, so the transition, um, it was gradual enough that it, I kind of worked my way to where it was more natural. I'm not naturally a television person. Yeah. Like that's not my personality. Um, but it got to be something where I, you know, I loved it. It was really fun. There's a whole different adrenaline rush that comes with, like, being on live TV. Right. You know, talking about, you know, okay, you know, John Harbaugh just told me via text five minutes ago, you know, such and such about Joe Flacco and the upcoming game that they had against the Steelers. And uh, so it was it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. All right, cool. So you actually just mentioned something that I was going to ask at a later stage, but 
you just brought up social media, right? So the importance of being on social media. And I checked out your Twitter, right? And um, so I was curious to get your take maybe on the personal brand, right? So somebody trying to get into the sport industry, um, how important is it to have a Twitter to where a student or an aspiring professional speaks to things that are going on in the industry to use it as a sort of supplement to traditional application materials. Does that play a role from your perspective? I think it does. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think there's hundreds of examples, certainly, of different ways to go about managing your social media profile, right? Like, you could um, criticize the president, as some people have done, and, right. you know, deal with social issues in, rela in relation to work. I personally, for me, don't think, you know, doing political commentary is something that helps my brand at the moment. Um, and so I think you have to kind of figure out what you're comfortable with and what how you want other people around you to represent you. I mean, particularly, I mean, if you look at Twitter, right? right. Like, um, there's... It's like, what, what do they say about Facebook? Facebook is, you know, everyone has the greatest life ever, right? <laughs> right? No one's going through anything, no like any, reel. any personal trauma, like any any hard times. And then Twitter is like, you're, you're basically creating this brand for yourself and, you know, a handful of characters and however many tweets you want to put. So I think um, when you are dealing with that, you have to be super cautious about what it is that you want your brand to be. Right. And um, and same with Instagram. You know, I have a 14-year-old. I tell her all the time, like, you cannot put anything on there that you don't want to be on there because that's how people are going to represent you. I, mean, I think right. you, you have to be super careful and diligent and methodical about what you create because it's out there and you can't take it back. Right. And especially since you talk about authenticity, right? So mm -hmm. to that being social capital almost right where you are an authentic person and people can relate to you i think at that stage social media can be used as a sort of personal branding tool almost right to where mm -hmm. you can can use that so that's that's really interesting now you mentioned learning a lot you know originally at sports illustrated so i'm curious in addition to um that process as it was taking place there were there any other mentors or role models, sources of inspiration along the way that you were able to sort of capitalize on? Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. They're, they're always, yeah. right? And you better have them. Yeah. <laughs> you need them. Bill Knack was, as I mentioned, was one because he was the most beautiful writer I've ever seen and, and was so generous with his time and, and, you know, teaching me how to, like I said, report, write, you know, get into um, subjects you know, and to really dig deep. Um, I was fortunate to work with a lot of really great people in Philadelphia, um, one of whom was Claire Smith, who was one of the first women, you know, to get into locker rooms, you know, back in the beginning, you know, really fought for the access that, right. uh, fortunately, I never had to really fight for. You know, she was the generation before me. I had to fight for other things. Um, but had it not been for the things that she and some of the earlier sports writers had fought for, like I would have never been in a position to be in the locker room 
to begin with. And then I had a lot of really, I worked with a lot of really super talented, wonderful people at um, ESPN who both taught me television um, and also taught me football. I mean, one of my favorite things to do would be just sit in the green room on a Sunday or a Monday during the football season because it was like a who's who of who would be in, you know, former players, former right. coaches, it, Herm Edwards, Jerome Bettis, Teddy Bruschi, Darren Woodson, Lewis Riddick, uh, Ron Jaworski. And, and Jaworski used to say all the time, the green room is where you go to tell lies. And um, I used to laugh because it wasn't lies. It was just like these amazing stories. Herm Edwards would come in and he would just like give a 10, 15 minute story about something that happened back in the day in Philly or, and it was just like, so, um, it was, uh, you know, illuminating, but it was also entertaining. And, uh, so I was, I was super fortunate to have a lot of really like those wonderful, um, men, like as part of my work life too. And is that something that emerged organically or did you seek that out deliberately mixed between the two it was um it was probably mixed yeah between the two i mean i um i'm big on on listening yeah right and i you know i know that there are things that i don't know and uh, particularly from the perspective of i mean i covered football for 15 years and i I approached every day as there was I, I could learn something new about the game every single day um, because obviously I didn't play it growing up right. um, I you know had a father who played it and it was very much like in my wheelhouse as a kid and I was an athlete as a kid and I grew up around athletes and um, but football was something like like I so when I was in Philly and I was covering the Eagles uh, Ron Jaworski was working at NFL Films, and he would sit every like Tuesday and Wednesday and break down film. He's like known for being, you know, the the film guy. And NFL Films is about forty five minutes away from where I lived, and so I called him and I was like, "Hey, can I just come watch, you know, Eagles film when you are breaking down Eagles film?" And he's like, "Sure, I don't care." And so we would sit in his office for like I don't know two hours and watch every single play that the Eagles ran from the week before, like 18 times per play, just over and over and over. And he'd show me like what the offensive line did, what the quarterback was doing and how protections were and routes. And so um, that was something that I definitely sought out. Um, And then, you know, just sitting back in the environments that I were and just like, you know, asking someone a question and just listening and paying attention. Like I was really really big on that because I just wanted to there were things I wanted to know that I didn't know and so yeah being being a perpetual learner I think has become somewhat of an undervalued I agree undervalued skill right so listening more than talking yes is another under undervalued skill for sure okay so you just mentioned that you had other things that you had to fight for compared Mm -hmm. to you know those walk in before you, you know, fighting for access to the locker room. Mm-hmm. So, what were some of those other things that you had to fight for? Uh, probably respect. Yeah. One uh, acceptance. Another, um, you know, acceptance at being in an NFL locker room. You know, when I got there, 
there were some women in the locker room, but there certainly weren't, you know, however many there are now. Um, it was, um, I like to say we were still kind of a rare species in that environment. Right. Um, <laughs> I tell the story, I was pregnant twice while covering the Eagles. And so if like a female is a rare species in the locker room, like the a pregnant woman is like an endangered species, like our, an alien from another planet. And yeah. um, so, but you know, I had to, I had to fight off stereotypes of females being in the locker room. I mean, one player who I had covered in college and played a, like almost more than 10 years in Philly once said to me, you know, I know you love coming in here and why? And it was, you know, he made a crude reference to, me, you know, looking at naked men, and I'm like, no, I'm just trying to do my job. Right. You know, I'm trying to do the job that I have that, like, just like my male counterparts. And uh, so I think, you know, we, I still had to, you know, fight for being accepted. And, you know, how you do that, I think, or how I did it was, you know, being professional, being accountable, giving back to like if a player or players would like come at me about something to push back because they don't really respect you if they can walk all over you and that's right. that's doesn't that's irregardless of your gender right um but i felt like i had to do it and then you know you have to as a female you have to watch what you wear you have to watch how your body language is um certainly make eye contact but you know you have to you can't stand too close you can't you know have like touch a shoulder you know innocently as it might be you have to be very cognizant of those kinds of things because you're already fighting you know well you're you're some chick in the locker room and you don't know what you're talking about and the only fan, reason right? yeah the only reason is you're here is because you want to look at naked men right which you know I, I always told her I was like well get over yourselves you know like you guys aren't yeah. that great <laughs> so those are just a couple of things alright so um now, with you being in that position and there only being, uh, you say, a small handful, right, almost you know, rare um, species, um, how did that look like in terms of maybe connecting with other women in your position? Mm -hmm. Did that take place to any oh, extent? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. How, how did that look like? Uh, well, so at the time when I was covering uh, the Eagles, it was me. It was a woman named Dana O'Neill who later went to ESPN as a college basketball reporter and is now at The Athletic, um, and Shannon Ryan, who was um, a younger reporter who's now at the Chicago Tribune, and we were, you know, we, there was a lot of solidarity there between us, because we all kind of figured, you know, we were all facing the same things. Right. Um, when I got to ESPN, it was really cool, like, there is a fraternity of females there, because you know, uh, you go through, as I've said, you go through kind of the same things. And being in television as a female is, is really challenging sometimes. And uh, I was fortunate, like, one of uh, the most gracious people to me when I was there was Hannah Storm. And Hannah Storm is like, you know, the queen of sports right. media, and she could not have been more awesome yeah. to me, whether we were sitting doing a segment together on SportsCenter or chatting off camera, like she was, she was great. And I think you find that, that, that doesn't happen 100% of the time, but um, I think I was really fortunate. There was a bond between 
the women and I think you know there's 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 room enough for everyone yeah. and uh, that to support one another uh, there's nothing wrong with doing that and you don't give up any ground right by being supportive and you know whether it be sharing contract information or you know hey I know this like you know help each other out and I, I have been very fortunate that that's the majority of my experiences with other women in the business, that's what it's been. All right. Is that a mistake that some women might make sometimes that they perceive to be given up grounds when they collaborate too much since you just brought that yeah. up that way? Does that does I think that it could be. I mean, yeah. it's it's a highly competitive environment. Yeah. Right? And um and uh the opportunities for women are like you get like when you get them you um in my opinion your 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 window of opportunity can be smaller right if you're if you're not performing or not um you know perceived to be performing so yeah i mean i think you could you could think oh i'm giving up ground by helping this other person who's gonna you know zoom past me it's kind of like it's kind of like an nfl player you know you know a veteran will always say you know they're they're always getting ready to draft my replacement right right and that's true in in any profession i think um including being a female in sports right so transitioning um, away from espn Mm -hmm. um, i'm assuming was another one of those seminal moments (laughs) you could say that yeah Um, to put it lightly Uh probably yes um you spoke to this before but just for our audience Uh who might be engaging with you and your story for the first time if you could briefly talk about that a little bit that that moment that seminal moment well getting laid off from a job uh unexpectedly when um you know the company said that they would not consider job performance as a criteria for who got laid off which I think it should be the only criteria, right. as my friend Ed Werder, who was also laid off, said. Uh, that was a seminal moment. Yeah. That was one of the worst days of my life. And uh, it really, um, it, I was down for a, a while about it. You know, I had worked my entire career to get to ESPN and to get to the level I was at, and then to lose it in an instant was... Um, it was pretty awful and uh you know getting it gave me a new appreciation certainly for what um coaches and players go through because you know i lost my job with a hundred other front-facing talent and uh it was big news when it happened and uh it was all over twitter and you know different websites had running lists of who got laid off and you know to watch it unfold um so publicly uh, when something happens to you, uh, that was a that was an interesting thing, and and it definitely had its bad parts, but it had its good parts too. I mean, my phone just exploded that day. It was April twenty sixth, twenty seventeen. You know, it was about two o'clock in the afternoon when I got the call, and then by like four o'clock, I'd heard from, you know, one of the first people I heard from was Andy Reid, who's the coach of the Chiefs, and he had heard, and was like. You know, I'm so sorry. Let me know what I can do. You know, I heard from people at the league office, from players, from coaches, you know, from fe- fe- you know fellow journalists, um, and uh, and and it meant a ton. And you learn very 
quickly and acutely like who your friends are and who they aren't. Yeah. And uh, that's a very eye-opening experience. And um, I tell this story shortly after the layoffs. It was maybe a week later. I was making dinner for my kids, and I got a call from Chris Berman, who is like just this, you know, giant at you know it, covering the NFL and sports media, and and he called me. Uh, it was about five o'clock, and he talked to me for about forty-five minutes, and was like, "I'm so sorry. Like, this isn't a reflection on you. Um, you know, I've worked in this company since it was like it basically it started, and I'm so sorry. And keep your head up. And I'm going to New York tomorrow, and I'm going to swing by. I'm going to go into a Mets game, and I'm going to swing by the league office. And I'm going to see Roger Goodell, and I'm going to put in a good word for you, and let me know how I can help you." Like just, he's like, call me anytime, let me know. And I was like, I was so touched by that because, you know, we were colleagues and certainly collegial and, and had like a, a bond between right. us. And, um, but still he didn't have to do that. Right. And, uh, the next day he went to New York and he was at the Mets game and he was going to go to see Goodell and his wife died in a car crash. And like, like, just like that, like she had waited for him for like, They'd been married, I think, 34 years, and he'd worked at ESPN forever, and he was now in semi-retirement, and they were getting ready to go to their house in Maui, and just their son was getting married, and and just, you know, like that, she was killed. And I went to her memorial service, and when I waited to talk to him for like an hour at the reception afterward, and when I got up to him, finally, he looked at me, and the first thing he said, he goes, are you here because I called you that day? And I was like, well, no, I'm here because you said that you would be there for me and I want you to know that I'd be there for you. And he's like, he's like, that's amazing. Like that's, that's, you know, that's real. That's what we're talking about. So, um, you know, you talk about seminal moments and, and, you know, I'm now in, I guess what I've learned is, you know, transition, like what's next and, uh, trying, I'm trying to figure that out. Um, but I think, you know, those seminal moments come and they come sometimes when you're least expecting them right. and, uh, you can't let the, the you know, there's so much good that can happen, but you can't let the bad, which can be really bad, completely break you and bring you down. Um, and I was kind of on the verge of that for a while and saw that and then was like, oh yeah, no, 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 life is way too short. Like, right. let's take advantage, you know, keep moving and figure out what's next. So how do so. you navigate at this point your your role in this new space of, you know, speaking and you're, I'm assuming you're still writing probably mm -hmm. in some capacity, mm -hmm. right? So away from these sort of more, I guess, structured externally role working for ESPN now in this new space, mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the, the challenges that you encounter in, the, in this arena? Yeah, well, the biggest one, I think, uh, is that um, I'm used to, like, ha having to go on television, having to provide information, texting a coach, a player, a general manager, and saying, I need to know this piece of information. I'm going on television in 20 minutes. Can you let me know? And then, boom, I get an answer, right? And then I right. go on television and I say, you know, so-and-so told me, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, then move on to the next 
the next segment or the next hit or whatever, and it keeps going. Like, it, like things happen quickly, and um, you know, my subject matters would know that, and I would know that, and it, that's just kind of the way it was. Now I'm in an environment where um, things don't happen that quickly, <laughs> and that's like that's frustrating, and it's taken me time to understand that you know the corporate world doesn't doesn't react as as quickly um you know i'm doing corporate motivational speaking and we're booking like into the fall of 2019 you know it's like i want to do it right now like let's right. do it now <laughs> and, but that's just not the way it works so i'm having to learn um some patience i'm having to learn that um you know i have transferable skills that uh, served me as a journalist that will work in other arenas. Uh, I'm trying to be creative in developing some programming. Uh, I've got a couple of book projects I'm working on. Uh, I'm interested in starting up my own podcast. Oh, wonderful. Um, so it's, you know, it's, you know, different tentacles in a lot of different places and right. trying to figure out how best to monetize that and the experiences that I've had. And, um, I, you know, I might get back into writing and back into journalism, uh, and I might not. And if I don't, like, I've kind of become okay with that, too. You know, I had a good run, and I did it at the highest level, and I'm really interested in doing something where I can give back to others now. Now, to somebody else maybe facing a similar shift in careers or maybe starting out in something that they're not intimately familiar with. Um, I'm assuming the learning curve has been relatively steep entering this sort of new arena. Um, how and through which channels have you been able to, to learn and, and acquire the knowledge for you to be able to succeed in this new area? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I've kind of approached it like a reporter because yeah. that's who I am. And so I've, you know, I've reached out to a lot of different people and asked for help. Okay. Uh, when I, you know, I, I had the pleasure of meeting a, a lady named Molly Fletcher about two weeks before I got laid off. And we did a speaking engagement together in Philadelphia. She uh, was a Big Ten grad, a tennis player like myself. Uh, she was a sports agent for many, many years. She represented like Tom Izzo and Billy Donovan and a bunch of the great Atlanta Braves pitchers. And when she was in her early 40s, she was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And, you know, it's 24-7, 365 babysitting, basically. And because, you know, it's, it's, you're dealing with athletes and repre representing them, and it's, it, it's a grueling thing. And she decided that she wanted to do public speaking. And... So I called her after I got laid off. I'm like, do you think I can do this? And because I'd, I'd listened to her, and she's got fantastic stories about being in sports and you know the lessons that she'd learned, and she'd written several books. And she was like, she's like, yes, you can totally do this. Like you can. This is right up your alley. Um, I reached out to Pat Croce, who also was in the corporate speaking circuit for a long time, and he was president of the Sixers when I covered the team. And he was like, come to my beach house in New Jersey and we'll sit and talk. And we sat and talked for three hours and, you know, told stories and he gave me advice and I took it. You know, I've taken their advice. I, you know, I'm constantly on the phone networking with my own network and then trying to branch out and, uh, you know, you know, through colleagues, friends, you know, and, and just really trying to gather as much information 
as I can. And that's been generally my approach. Um, you know, I think as a, as a, as someone who used to be a, a, a reporter who relied on other people to, to give me information a yeah. lot of times, um, like that in its own way is asking for help, but like coming out and saying, okay, look, I need you to help me. Can you help me? Like that didn't necessarily come naturally for me. Yeah. Um, but what I found is that, um, a lot of people like giving people help, particularly when they're, you know, in a, a career transition as it were. So, um, I think, I think asking for help has been one of the biggest things that I've learned. Yeah, I was going to follow up with that question, right? For somebody maybe thinking that asking for help might be perceived as a weakness, mm -hmm. um, what may be a mental sort of reframe to overcome that. So you say, you know, realize that people are actually happy to help, right? If, mm -hmm. you, if you do ask for it. All right, very cool. Now, with this industry, obviously you are sort of in this space to motivate and mm -hmm. inspire others. And I'm curious what inspires and motivates you personally. Uh, well, my kids, yeah, for sure. Yes, I have a 14-year-old daughter who's an athlete and um, a nine-year-old son who's an athlete too. And, uh, you know, they are my primary motivation because um, I want to be able to take care of them. And, you know, they are, you know, we're used to me being on television and being able to see me on TV. And, you know, my nine-year-old, I was, he was like seven and a half when I got laid off and he's like, Oh, you got fired. I'm like, and I didn't get fired. <laughs> like there's a difference. Like, let's, let's be right. clear. I didn't do anything wrong. Right. Like it was a corporate like downsizing. Um, but you know, I want them to see me as a successful, happy professional person and as I mentioned I mean it's been it has been hard and they've seen you know they've seen fortunately a lot of good and they've seen their mom struggle um, at times and so I'm really committed to being um, personally and professionally happy for myself and for them and you know just because I think one door slams in your face doesn't mean that um, it's over. And so I want to show them that, you know, I'm a fighter and it's not over for me. All right. Um, so borrowing a line from one of my favorite podcasts, um, Impact Theory, that I've watched religiously on YouTube, um, before I ask the last question, um, if people want to follow you or check out what you have to offer, where would they find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, mm -hmm. Ashley Fox ESPN. I have not augmented my Twitter yet. I need to do that, but I haven't yet. Uh, I have a website, AshleyFoxSpeaker.com. Okay. Um, my agent has a website, CAgency.com, uh, where she's got a, a bunch of really awesome speakers, including several former athletes, which is cool. Um, yeah, and you can find me on Instagram, usually posting you know some pictures of food or something like that nice. but <laughs> but yeah Twitter is like my main uh, source of communication so if you kind of at me on Twitter I'll see it oh, very cool and finally if you imagine yourself talking to a group of students uh -huh. and you really only had one takeaway message that if they were for, to forget literally every other thing that you said <laughs> during the 45 minutes or 30 minutes that you talked to them which they probably would <laughs> which they may but. or may not do um, yeah. what would that one thing be you want to leave them with 
work hard and love what you do. Love because what you do. if you love what you do, you'll never work. It'll always be great. But you got to work hard. All right. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. All right. Let's turn this off.